In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. His name is Blind Willie Johnson, and he was born in Pendleton, Texas. I have no idea where that is. That's a big state. I wouldn't want to paint it. Uh, but he was born there in 1897. And uh, he got the name from uh, a fight that ensued between his stepmom and his dad, and she splashes some lye water on his face, and it, he, his, his sight deteriorates ever since then. But he taught himself how to play steel guitar, and his many, one of many claims to fame is that he's one of the earliest blues guitarists that we know of, and he was also one of the earliest blues recording artists to know of. He taught himself to play, he cut his own albums. I'm going to play you an excerpt from one of them in just a moment. But Blind Willie Jack Johnson's house burned, and he, he slept in its ruins, and he caught pneumonia, and he died at the age of 48. But not before he'd written and, and, and published several albums. And one of the songs that is perhaps his most famous is entitled, uh, Dark Was the Night, Cold Was the Ground. And I want to play you just an excerpt. It's, it's basically an instrumental with some of his, his uh, humming and groaning in it. And I just want you to hear blues. This is the vibe of blues. This is, this is Blind Willie Johnson's story in a song. It's profound, it's poignant. You'll get to hear the, the entirety of it after we're concluded today. But that's the blues. And it comes out of the black American experience in the 19th and 20th century. So you hear a man singing from his deep experience. And the song is itself, the whole blues genre, right, is an expression of that sorrow and that lament, but also an attempt to be liberated from the sorrow by, by venting it by expressing it. Two things that are remarkable about that song. It's an instrumental version, but it is based upon an English hymn of the 19th century entitled Gethsemane. The song is inspired by Jesus in his dark night, such that the first two verses of that hymn goes like this. Dark was the night and cold the ground on which the Lord was laid. He sweat like drops of blood, ran down in agony he prayed. Father, remove this bitter cup. 
If such thy sacred will, if not content to drink it up, thy pleasure I fulfill. Blind Willie Johnson's, most of his music has biblical themes worked in it, and so too this one, even though it is primarily, if not exclusively, an instrumental version of moaning, of groaning, inspired by what Jesus suffered at Gethsemane. That's, that's one remarkable feature about this song. Here's the other. One day, this song might be heard by aliens. What? 1978, 1979, two spacecraft, Voyager 1, Voyager 2, and the powers that be at JPL and NASA said, what if somebody ends up intercepting it? You know, you saw Star Trek, the motion picture, Voyager 6, right? V'ger. <clears throat> what they put on both of those probes, deep space probes, went by Jupiter and Saturn and Uranus and out to what used to be named Pluto, right? That formerly, formerly known as a planet. They put on those probes a golden record, the Voyager golden record, that has sounds from all experiences of human experience, but also they put 25 songs, 25 songs from every genre and every country and every nationality and every language that you can imagine. And one of those songs on that album is Blind Willie Johnson's Dark Was the Night, Cold Was the Ground. A witness to the gospel from Gethsemane might one day be heard by aliens. Now that is reach. <laughs> that song, the blues, the sorrow, and the hope that's trying to find its way out of the sorrow, that's on a probe with no destination in mind but with the hope of being discovered. That's the feel I'm trying to get to. Why? We've been listening to a letter from the Apostle Paul to the fledgling churches in Ephesus, what is now modern-day Turkey. And you might think as we go along through this letter that he was just sort of bored one day, and he goes, I think I'll write them a letter. You're going to hear twice in this passage what we all have to remember. Paul is writing from prison. Uh, the plan he thought he would be on, this was not the story he would have written for himself, and yet here he was. And in a moment like that, he might have begun to wonder, hmm, I wonder if that ecstatic experience was imaginary. And he knows what he might have been thinking, but he also knows about those he's written to and of the, plant, the churches he's already planted. If they hear that he's in prison, they might begin to wonder, hmm, he talked a great game. Maybe it was just a projection of his deepest wishes that had nothing to do with reality. Paul knows that. And in the passage that we're going to listen to today, he is going to tell us and them, don't lose heart. Don't lose heart. You may be singing the blues for any number of reasons, and Lord knows people, even though none of us can relate to the experience of Blind Willie Johnson for the most part, this world is well suited for you at some point to be singing the blues, and you might be doing that this morning. And we're about to hit Advent. As Allison said, which it sometimes feels like you're mandated to be mirthful and cheerful. And guess what? It may not fit. So here's the question. In your blues, what does it take to not lose heart? In this passage, I think Paul's got three things for us that you and I need to sing 
to ourselves, to each other, so to speak, to reach for and cling to and ask him to make it real to us as often as we need it. Three things that we need to remember that in our blues allows us to not lose heart. What are those three things? Our place in his purpose, the worth of his wisdom, and the confidence in our access. Our place in his purpose, the worth of his wisdom, and our confidence in his and our access to him. That's where we're going. That's where we're going to listen. Ephesians chapter 3. I wonder if you might stand. We'll listen to what he has to say. <clears throat> Ephesians 3, starting in verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has been now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in, the church, for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may have a seat. <clears throat> Look, if you had the conversion experience that Paul did on his way to try to root out the church and make it suffer in Damascus, and if you went then to Arabia for 14 years to do what none of us know except him and God alone, and and then you even encounter some of the apostles who have kind of this ambivalent response, like they think you're a mole. They think you're out to infiltrate the ranks and to take everybody down. Um, if all of that works out well and you start being commissioned to go as a minister to the Gentiles, you will feel like you have the wind at your back if that is your experience. And then to find yourself in prison, you might begin to wonder... Um, Maybe I misunderstood. Maybe I miscalculated. But if you hear Paul talk about it in other letters to other churches in other places, even when he's writing from prison to the church at Philippi, he speaks of the opportunities that he's had to bear witness to the gospel, even in prison. So this dude's unflappable. He has discovered that even in what might have made him or others lose heart, he's not Losing heart, his purpose has not been interrupted. 
And along that way, you heard it if you were listening closely, four times there's one word that Paul speaks of his purpose. He speaks of the word mystery, which is not to be confused with anything by Angela Lansbury. It's not an Alfred Hitchcock film. It's not a a cold case, an indecipherable message. He's talking about something that was once concealed, once somewhat hidden, but now is out in full open. It's full bloom. It's there for everyone to see. Now, there have been hints and echoes and rumors. If you ever saw The Sixth Sense, right? The red door, I'm going to ruin it for you. Sorry, you had 25 years. Like the red doorknob, um, <clears throat> the wife that doesn't look at him while they're talking, all of that stuff. And in, 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 in forward, you go, I missed all of that. And then you look back in reverse and go, how did I miss it? It's the way with the gospel. Uh, in, in, play the tape forward. There's just maybe hints and echoes and rumors along the way, but you don't see it. But then you look back and you go, how did I miss it? Now it's all in full display. This mystery As you've heard us say before earlier in the letter, this is a mystery that has been revealed in time. But it was originated in eternity. This was not something that God had to kind of be a chess player in which, uh uh-oh, didn't see that coming. Oh, I'll respond. It was like, I knew the end from the beginning. This was the plan. You just didn't know. What is the mystery? Tell us. Verse 6. Listen again. This mystery, he says, is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus. Recalling where we've been in all of chapter 2, how Paul is there to tell the Gentiles, look, you are not the redheaded stepchild that nobody thinks about. You are not the JV. You are not the night shift. You are not second tier. You have a place in his favor. You have a seat at his table. Now put that in context. When Jesus sees the woman at the well in John chapter 4, he makes it clear. Salvation is from the Jews. Paul, in his other letters, he'll say several times in the book of Romans, the gospel is first for the Jew and then for the Greek. In John chapter 12, Jesus is out proclaiming the gospel, and then, and then a couple of folks approach Philip. They want to talk with Jesus. And who are they? They're Greeks. And they say to Philip, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Which for Jesus means it's working. The word is getting out. The plan is now starting to blossom. The Gentiles have always been in God's mind and in God's heart. And now it's starting to reach for them. Such that in Acts chapter 9, Cornelius, right? A Roman centurion, he has this image that maybe he's supposed to seek out this one named Peter. Peter has this image on top of a roof. You know, this food brought down saying, go ahead and eat. And Peter goes, I know what you're doing. Don't trick me. He says, don't call anything unclean that I have made clean. And finally, Peter reports back to the church in Jerusalem. Guess what? The Gentiles, them too, It was part of the plan. That's the mystery. That's where it's going. Such that when you want to understand kind of how it all culminates, in Hebrews chapter 11, the author that Hebrews was in jeopardy this week. Did anybody catch that? Yeah, they're wrong, but it was in jeopardy this week. (laughs) We don't know who wrote it. 
But when the author concludes this holy list of those that walked by faith, though they could not see the coming days and the promises that they hoped for, which were not yet fulfilled in their day, the author of Hebrews culminates like this. All these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect, which is just a highfalutin way of saying, oh, it was coming. The promise was coming, but not until we brought the Gentiles in. And then something would trigger and something would blow. Paul's purpose in his life is to declare this mystery. That the Gentiles ought not think of themselves as inferior to their Jewish brethren who share a common faith in Jesus. And that is all perhaps interesting to you. Oh, good. Now I, now I know how to answer that question at a Bible study. How interesting. But I, I'll, yes, I'll be honest with you. To you and I, it's like, that's great. I don't really feel inferior to my Jewish brethren who also share in Jesus. What's the relevance to us knowing that the mystery of being welcomed in like our Jewish brethren, why, why should you care about that? I, I will tell you. Paul in this moment is being both a messenger and a model of hope. He is being an expression, a model of the message in, in, in putting it this way that I think is relevant to our condition. Whenever you think that you thought was true suddenly becomes untrue, there are some things that still remain true. When everything that you thought was sure suddenly becomes unsure, there are some things that are still sure. When life, so to speak, uh, splashes lie in your eyes, such that everything that you once saw clearly is no longer clear to you, there are some things that are still clear. And in the gospel, it is this. You have a place in his purpose, and what I mean by that is this. In Jesus, your favor with him is sure. And your future with him is set. Period. And that has nothing to do with what you did. It has nothing to do with your record. It is nothing to, has nothing to do with how you did today or the 30,000 days before. This is all about what he did. And that is your place in his purpose. I want to kind of make that feel a little practical here. There's a, a moment from early on in This Is Us in which Kevin, um, uh, their son, has been a star football player. And he has all of the marks of really being able to make it in college and, and maybe, maybe something more so afterwards. And then he blows out his ACL. And it's a career-ending injury. And he's done. And here in this moment where his whole life has now, in his mind, imploded, his father is there to remind him of something. I got this at a very hopeless time in my life. Someone very special gave it to me back in Vietnam. Symbol of purpose. I was feeling very lost when I got that. But I put it on 
and I moved forward. And you know when I was wearing it? The day you were born. The moment you came out, my number one. When I held you for the first time right here in this hospital, it hit me like a bolt of lightning. You were my purpose, Kevin. And I swear to you, son, I swear to you, you will find yours. It didn't matter what he did or did not do on the field. It mattered that he belonged to his father. And as often as you need to, to remind yourself that because of Jesus and your faith in him, that you belong to a father who looks with as much cherishing at you as that father looked at his son. Whatever it takes for you to remember that or to sing that or have somebody sing that over you, do that. That's the application. That's the tweet. That's your place in his purpose. But Paul doesn't want to just leave it there. He's got something else to do. He's got something else to tell you. There's a second reason why you might not lose heart, and that is to speak of the worth of his wisdom. Now, buckle up. But listen again what that is, starting in verse 8. To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, the grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. You've heard that part, right? And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery. There it is, hidden for ages in God who created all things. Here it is. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. That's a mouthful. Let's break it down in simplest parts. This mystery is to be made known, the mystery to make known the, the manifold wisdom of God. Manifold wisdom. Mm, sounds deep. What is that? You ever been to a jewelry store? You ever, you ever picked out um, a jewel and they let you look at it underneath the you know, magnifying glass and they sparkle light on it and in every direction you turn, there's a new color. There's a new brilliance. Every facet has its own unique signature. Everything that you see, just by turning it, there are facets, that's what they call them, facets, right? And with every churn of the facet, the light hits it differently and you see all this wonderful color. There's manifold light and brilliance in that single jewel. Paul is saying that when you look at the wisdom of God in the gospel, from every direction, there is something there that catches your eye, that there's a certain brilliance and luminosity to it, that it will sparkle where it hits you. How could I break that down? Here's, here's one facet. God has exerted his will for the good of humanity. But it's better than that. He has actually exerted his will for the good of humanity before there ever was a humanity. And so as we've said before, that which God has wrought in eternity cannot be rescinded in time. What else? That God has called a people to himself. Yes, but what's even greater than that? He has not only called a people who were kind of his first family, that he had his eye on there to be the, 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 the gatekeepers or the, or the source of all blessing to all families. He's not only got an eye on them, he's got his eye on those that are outside of that family. 
But they might be part of one common family. You heard that last week, how he's brought the two one through what Jesus has done by breaking down the hostility that was between them. But here's the kicker. Here's the part that's the most brilliant. And I'm borrowing from what Paul says in another letter about wisdom, this time to the church at Corinth. He says in 1 Corinthians 1, Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews, folly to Gentiles. But to those who were called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. What's he saying there? What did Jews want to prove, to get proof that Jesus was legit? They want to see power. They know the story of the Exodus. They know the story of the flood. They know the story of the land. They know the story of the sun stopping still in the middle of Joshua. So you want to show us power? Show us power. Then we'll believe it. That's, that's, that's their hang-up. And what about the Greeks? We need to contemplate this. We need to reflect on this. Tell us about the philosophy of your way of life. That's their hang-up. That's what they wanted. If you, if, you, if you get that, then we believe. The Jews want, show us power, and we get that, we believe. And Paul is saying, let me show you what the wisdom of God is. Jesus died for his enemies. He reconciled humanity to himself through his blood and then therefore made this the foundation of all life. Not what you did on a field, but of what he did on a cross. And that changes entirely the quality of all of your striving and all of your aspiring. It doesn't mean you become, I will just sit here in a chair and just sort of watch life go by. You do strive. Everything is a gift. You become a steward of what you've been given. But none of that becomes an index of your worth. None of that determines whether you are his. That's the wisdom of God. And that's the most brilliant part. And that's the manifold wisdom that is to be made known through whom? Through me? Through the people that talk that won't shut up? No, through you. Through the church. You're it. Tag, you're it. Your life with one another. Your care for one another. You're screwing up with one another and struggling in what it means to forgive one another. You become a demonstration. You become some sort of proof of that manifold wisdom in your common life together. You thought you were just supposed to come here and sit and listen. No. You bear witness to that wisdom in your individual selves, but mostly through your collective life together. Whether you sit down here or you sit up there, that's who it is. Now, here's the woo-wooest part. The manifold wisdom of God is to be made known through the church to whom? In John 17, Jesus prays for a lot of things, and he prays for the church. And one of the reasons he prays for the church is that they might be one. Why? So that the world might know that you, Father, sent me right? <clears throat> the oneness of the church, the unity of the body, the way they work towards unity and harmony, whatever they can, that ends up being a witness to the world. But what does Paul say, the primary audience of the church's manifold wisdom, who is it for? To the rulers and principalities of the heavenly realms. You're the Voyager golden record. 
You're the celestial message to those things, as Peter says, in which angels have longed to look. That's your gig. Yes, to the world. But in the same way that what was concealed on earth has now been revealed on earth, guess what? It was also concealed in some part of heaven. Whatever you want to talk about that, however you want to describe that, it was also concealed to them and now it's revealed to them. Your witness is to a place you've never dreamt of and could never imagine. Oh man, what do you do with that? What do you do with the fact that your life together is somehow a witness to the celestial regions? And that's not, please, heavenly realm, don't think of it as like, oh, this reaches um, Alpha Centauri. No, 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 no. Don't, don't screw up the metaphors there, right? Why does that matter? Let me... Why do we talk about this? One, Paul says we probably should, because he does. But here's another reason. It's so that we will avoid two ditches. And God help me here, because we'll probably have to talk about this afterwards. You go, what did you mean? There's a couple ditches that you and I can fall into by virtue of our membership in the church. The, the first one we'll call the, the social cause ditch. Uh, Richard Beck is a professor out at Abilene Christian University, and uh, his argument over time is that it's really easy for the church to drift into a club of practical atheists. And he identifies several ways in which a church unintentionally does that, and one of which is it, it drifts so much into being so socially conscious that it becomes like Thomas Jefferson. It, it takes a pen knife and cuts out everything that has to do with the supernatural, everything that has to do with the spiritual, all the weird, spooky the kind of stuff that if you're here today that you are just sort of entertaining Jesus, you listen to this and go, whoa, okay, whatever. There's a deep draw to becoming so conscious of social concern that we think, you know that Jesus part and talking to the celestial stuff, that's nice, but that's kind of like Elf on a Shelf. He might be watching, but I really don't care about it, and I'd like to put it back in the attic. Hear me out. We are partnering with Safe Light because Jesus said we love our neighbor as ourselves. We're partnering with Safe Light because we believe they have a kind of wisdom and focused attention and resources that we will never have. That they are right and meet to attend to the assault issues that plague our region. And it is everywhere. But friends... What Richard Beck warns of is that if we become so concerned with social consciousness that we leave all this stuff out, all the woo-woo stuff out, we won't have anything left to be able to persevere in that work of social causes. It's not an either-or, but we just have to avoid the drift into that world in which Jesus becomes really non-essential. We just have to be sympathetic. But you and I won't be sympathetic for long unless we have something deeper and wider that reaches into our core. That's the gospel. That's one ditch we have to avoid. And I'll have to clarify that if you go, wait, we shouldn't do this? Of course we should, just for the right reasons. The other ditch is this. And we'll call it the therapeutic. Brad East is a colleague of Richard Beck's, and he says the therapeutic church is an atheist church. Now, those of you with a therapist background, please, I'm not coming after you. What I mean by therapeutic is, 
as Brad East says, where we put such an attention on making sure you feel okay about you. I have to affirm you in every way. I have to tell you everything that you want to hear. And I have to tell you nothing that you don't want to hear. Because if I do, that will hurt. And therefore, there is no place for error. There's no place for sin. And guilt and shame are actually harmful. If I only say that to you, what you want to hear, and never speak of the fact that I needed Jesus to do what he did. You needed Jesus to do what he did. Jesus on the cross is not saying to you, I'm okay, you're okay. If, he, if that was the case, then what a narcissist. Oh, you let yourself die for no purpose. And that's why Brad East will say, does anybody ever read Paul and think, now there's a well-adjusted person. He walks into suffering? If you think that Jesus isn't necessary for your inner life and your outer life, then what's the point? And then it really does become a practical club of practical atheists who just keep saying to each other, you're great, nothing needs to change. Every love has a desire for the one they love. Well, Jesus does for us too. And that's why I would say unto you, both in the attempt to be so socially minded and so affirming of our person, what do both of those have in common? They're all about to remind us that we matter. And I am just here to say, you matter because of what he did for you. And if ever you think that is just sort of like on the margins, well then I have failed. How do we sing the blues in that we not lose heart, is that you matter because of what he did. And that's what propels us and compels us to work like this. And that's what reminds us that we are beloved, but also needful of him to change. Last thing, that's all out there, way out there. So let's bring it really close in. What's the third thing and the last thing you gotta remember? It's what he says there at the very end. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. He comes to us, not that just we'll have a, a place in his purpose and, and not just so that we will recognize the worth of his wisdom, but also that we would know that we have an access to God that is unqualified. There is no need for an appointment. There is no, let me take a number. Uh, there is no, I'm going to need you to submit your talking points before we can get together. There's none of that. You walk in, you sit down, you address, you receive, not because of you, but because of Jesus. At the, at the beginning of the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, um, you get the impression from, from the woman that runs the house that Professor Kirk must be a really um, uppity, kind of tight dude because like, she gives the impression he ought not ever be disturbed. Don't. Shh. Shh, children. Stop being children. And then at the end of the film, you see Jim Broadbent come out in his, what, 45-second cameo as Professor Kirk, and he's the most approachable, kind, genial, curious, interested, 
loving soul. I don't think Lewis was just creating a character just to create a character. You and I have access to the Father through Jesus such that we may approach him with confidence. Not shrinking in shame, not holding our head down like in that famous parable of the publican and the Pharisee. Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Can't even look at him. That's not us. What this means for us is that you may approach him in your utter desolation and address him. Next week, we're going to listen for the first week of Advent, listening to Job. And if you want to hear a song of desolation, you're going to find it. You may approach him in your desolation, and you may approach him in the dumpster fire of your failures. He holds your hand. He looks at the dumpster fire and says, yes, this is a dumpster fire. But no, I will not let go of your hand. You and I have a confidence to approach him in that way because of what Jesus has done for us. And it is that truth that we must sing to ourselves or have someone sing to us that we might rest in that. And that's why we're coming to the table. We don't need another reason to come to the table. But here is Jesus singing to us his own blues. He's about to go to the most desolate moment of his life so that in ours, both desolation and failure, we might trust that we belong. And that's why we come here. Because he's good. Because he loves. Because he knows the blues. And because he knows when you sing them too, there are things to which you might cling that help you not lose heart. Bring your blues to the table, folks. That's one of the reasons we do it. Let's pray. It all, so sounds, it all sounds so clean and easy in a moment like this, Father. And we know that life is messy. We know that's what happened in Colorado yesterday, and UVA earlier this week, and in Ukraine for what seems like endless days, and all sorts of places that we don't even know about it and all sorts of households, maybe even in this room, in which there is desolation and confusion and sorrow and affliction and all sorts of things, I would pray that you would encourage us again to walk in faithfulness and love, to persevere in it, whatever our song may be, whether light or dark. But we thank you that you have not left us without a witness, and that you have not imposed upon us a responsibility to simply screw up our courage and live, but you have given us your spirit in whom we might cry out, if only with groans, like Blind Willie Johnson. Help us to believe this is true by your spirit, that we might walk in faith, even in our tears. In Jesus' name, amen.